Praise the Lord. Do you believe this morning? <clears throat> How's your faith this morning? Yeah? You know, I realize that um, in a gathering like this, with uh, multiple experiences and different kinds of weeks that we're all coming from, that our responses to that question, how is our faith this morning, could be all along the spectrum, you know? And so this morning, I, I don't want to take that for granted. I don't want to just kind of put on a plastic smile and, and say, hey, everything's fine and dandy. <laughs> but with Jesus, even when there's clouds, there's always a sun that's shining. Even when it's stormy, there's always a captain in our ship. And so I don't know. I don't know what your winds feel like, what your storm feels like, but I know there is a Savior who lives. And today we have the privilege of gathering together and worshiping Him. We have the privilege of praying and becoming a house of prayer. This is a mini-series that we've kind of been uh, tracking through over the last few weeks. And uh, even before we get into our third part of this study, I really just want to take some time to pray. I know we've had several prayers offered already, but I want to give you the opportunity just to pray. And um, I, I would even give you permission to find someone that's next to you and offer a word of prayer with them. You know, you may not even know their name just yet, but you can go ahead and tap their shoulders, squeeze their hand, and, and pray with them. Or if you'd rather, just pray silently where you are. That is totally okay too. But I just want to open this time with seeking, seeking God intentionally and personally through prayer. So go ahead, take a few moments, pray with someone who's next to you, or or just sit by yourself and, and lift up those around you in prayer. Let's pray. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim. In the light of his glory and grace. Father in heaven, today our desire is just to turn our eyes upon Jesus. To fix our eyes on him who lives for us today. And God, I, I know that throughout this week we have had our minds and hearts given in many different directions. Some in directions of sorrow and grief some in directions of praise and celebration. And so, Lord, whatever the case, I pray that, that we would be able to fix our eyes on Jesus today. 
Lord, as we turn to the scriptures and as we seek to understand how we can become a house of prayer, we give you permission to really lift up our hearts and minds above the things of this world, that the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of your glory and your grace. So please, send us your Holy Spirit. Please, open up these, these pages of scripture and may they become more than just ink on paper. May it be the living word to our souls. Please, Lord, teach us. We pray in Jesus' name. Let the family say, Amen. 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 All right. Take your Bible, if you will, and go with me to Isaiah chapter 59. This is just going to be kind of an introductory passage as we get into our, our third part of becoming a house of prayer. We've been walking through this over the last several weeks, becoming a house of prayer. In part one, we were talking about how in, in really, in order to prepare for prophecy's fulfillment, God is calling us to become a house of prayer. You remember there was a time in Luke chapter 19 where, where Jesus was entering into Jerusalem and he was weeping and sobbing over the city of Jerusalem. And one of the things he said was, they don't even know the time of their what? Does anybody remember? The time of their visitation. They don't even know the time of their visitation. They don't even know the fulfillment of prophecy is right at hand, that I'm it. And Jesus is weeping and sorrowing. And the very next scene you see in Luke chapter 19 is he walks into the temple he clears it out, and he says, my house shall be what? A house of prayer. In other words, as, as prophecy is being fulfilled, Jesus' desire, his urgent priority, is that we would be a house of prayer. And, the, and then in part two, what we found is that the reality of the disciples, they knew it, that when they saw Jesus praying, they saw how he was praying, they knew that they needed to be taught how to pray. Do you remember? The disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us to pray. And so here, part three, we're, we're getting into more into the school of prayer with Christ, all right? The school of prayer with Christ. And today, our topic, as we go to Isaiah 59, our, our topic is, what is intercessory prayer? intercessory prayer. Has anybody ever heard of that word before, intercessory? That's not something we use every single day of the week. But uh, if you were to give me a, a Webster's definition of that, what is it? What is intercession? What is intercessory prayer? Stepping between. Stepping between. Okay. What else? Interceding. Oh, what, what, what? Okay, this is, this is one of those things where it's like, oh, it's a familiar word, but we don't really grasp it. Well, let's study it. How about it? Yeah? Okay. <laughs> let's study it. Interceding, stepping between. Stepping between, standing in the gap, so to speak. And uh, we're going to find what is intercessory prayer, but maybe I should ask this. Uh, you know, a, a basic definition would simply be praying for someone else. Praying on behalf of someone else. Can we work with that definition for now? Is that okay? Now, we're, we're in Isaiah 59. If you're there, go ahead and say amen. Okay, Isaiah 59, we're going to take a look at verses 15 and 16. Actually, before we even get to that, I think there maybe needs to be a preliminary question that we need to settle even before we start studying about intercessory prayer. And that simple question is, why? Why intercede for other people? Maybe you, you have asked the question yourself, and maybe others have asked you the question, or maybe you haven't even asked the question. But there is a strain of thought that would even kind of object to intercessory prayer. They would say that God already knows the end from the beginning, so why even pray about it if he already knows it's going to happen? 
I, I don't know, has that thought ever crossed your mind? God already knows, or he already knows what other people need, so what good would it do? What use is it for me to mention that this person needs this? He already knows. He already knows. And let me just say this. The simple answer to that objection would be that God's foreknowledge, God's foreknowledge is not deterministic. Did you catch that? God's foreknowledge is not deterministic. Uh, In other words, maybe more simple terms, just because God knows, it doesn't remove our choice in allowing God to work in our lives or in allowing God to work in other people's lives. Okay? Do we follow that today? Is that all right? So just because God knows the end from the beginning, it doesn't mean that he is, uh, he is just going to preclude our free will. No, he's not. He's not going to violate our free will. In fact, our praying and our asking enables him. It enables him to move and to do what he already wants to do. I'll say it again. Our asking and praying enables him to act without violating our free will. And in the scheme of the great controversy, there are some rules of engagement. In the scheme of the great controversy, there are things that God will not do and cannot do unless we ask. Unless we ask. I think about... um, Sorry, I know you've got your finger in Isaiah right now. <laughs> we're, we're almost there, believe me. But I think about the prophet Daniel. You know, we've been at this prophecy seminar over the last several weekends, and, you know, the prophet Daniel was a man of prayer. Do you realize that? He was a man of prayer. How many times a day do you remember he prayed? Three times a day. Like he, he valued it so much that he had to, more than his necessary food, he had to seek God in prayer. He understood the vital importance of praying, and that God's will would be done. But do you know what Daniel was praying for? Was he praying three times a day for his food? (laughs) He was praying three times a day for, I heard someone say it, for, for his people, for the restoration of Jerusalem. Now here's the thing. Daniel lived at an interesting time. We know that he was prophesying things that were way beyond his time, but Daniel lived in a time when prophecy was being fulfilled during his time, or at least it should have been fulfilled. Jeremiah had prophesied that the people of of God would be taken captive, and they'd be taken captive for 70 years in Babylon. And Daniel was living at the time where that 70 years of captivity was coming to an end. Daniel knew the prophecies, and yet they weren't restored back to Jerusalem. They were still captive. And so here's Daniel. He knows that God is has a prophecy that eventually, after 70 years, captivity is going to return, the exiles are going to go back. But what's Daniel doing? Is he just going to say, oh, prophecy is going to happen no matter what? It's a matter of course. No, what's he doing? He's interceding. He's praying. Do you understand that Daniel is praying even for the things that God already said he was going to do? Does that make Does that make sense? (laughs) That that he was interceding for the things that God had already prophesied. And I would submit that prophecy is actually an invitation to intercede. Prophecy is actually an invitation to intercede. So if there should be a people of intercessors, (laughs) it should be us, friends. It should be us. We we ought not to say, oh, the latter rain will come because, you know, in Revelation 18, it says the loud cry and, you know. No, we pray for rain. We pray for the latter rain. Do you follow? Yeah? You know, we don't just say, oh, okay, Laodicea will eventually be, you know, the people who are sealed with the seal of God. 
No, we pray for that. <laughs> oh, we know that in Revelation 13, the beast power here and the beast power, oh, things are just going to go down. Oh, well. No, we pray that God would call people out of Babylon. We pray. We pro- Sorry, oh, man, we're just in the introduction. I'm getting, okay. <laughs> All right, so here it is. Here it is. Prophecy is an invitation to intercede. If ever there's a question, why should I intercede? Because God cannot do what we have not asked him to do. God has prophesied that he will come again. Oh, it's just going to happen in this. What if he's waiting for people to pray? At the end of Revelation, do you know what the last words are? Even so, come Lord, it's a prayer. Lord, help me. (laughs) Teach us to pray, right? Okay, so here we are. We're talking about intercessory prayer. Are you ready to study it now? (laughs) All right, we're in Isaiah chapter 59. In Isaiah chapter 59, and I'm going to start in verse 15 and 16. If you kind of allow your eyes to glaze over the verses right before that. It's a condition of God's people where it's really hopeless and it's really pitiful. And in verse 15 it says, I'm reading from the New King James. Isaiah 59, verse 15, the Bible says, So truth fails, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. What in the world is going on? The truth of God, it's not valued by people. And anybody who actually wants to live for God, they're making themselves a target for other people's attacks. Okay? That's not a, that's not a healthy environment. That's a hostile environment to live in. Okay? It says... So truth fails, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. Then the Lord saw it, and how did he feel about it? Oh, man, it says it, it displeased him. That's what the New King James says. It displeased him that there was no justice. It goes on, verse 16. He saw that there was no man, and wondered that there was no intercessor. Therefore, his own arm brought salvation for him and his own righteousness. It sustained him. Question, what is the Lord displeased with? Okay, okay. First of all, he's, he's displeased at the injustice that's taking place. But secondly, he is more displeased at the fact that when he's looking for anybody who cares, he doesn't see anybody. Have mercy. He doesn't see anybody praying for the situation. He doesn't see anybody standing in the gap and saying, Lord, do something. He probably feels like that, right? (laughs) You know, he's he's just longing. Where is anyone to pray? And in the rest of verse 16, it says, Therefore his own arm brought salvation for him, and his own righteousness it sustained him. He stepped in. He stepped in. The Lord is displeased when there are no intercessors. In fact, in where it says in verse 16, he saw and there was no man, New King James says he wondered that there was no intercessor. The literal term is he was appalled. He was appalled, disgusted, emptied of all sympathy. Like, what is going on? Go with me to Ezekiel, a few books later. So we're in Isaiah, go to Jeremiah, and then Ezekiel. So hang a right. We're going to Ezekiel chapter 22. Ezekiel chapter 22. Ezekiel also in the New, sorry, Old Testament. Ezekiel chapter 22. He's a prophet who's living also during a time 
That is not pretty. Ezekiel 22, beginning in verse 30. If you're there, say, I have found it. All right, Ezekiel 22, verse 30. The Bible says, So, this is God speaking, So I sought for a man among them who would make a wall. Maybe they're looking for a general contractor or what. Let's keep reading. I sought for a man among them who would make a wall and stand in the gap before me on behalf of the land that I should not destroy it. But how many did he find? But I found none. There's a gap, God says. There's a gap and there needs to be a wall that's built. There needs to be someone to stand in the middle. And he's looking for someone to do it, but he doesn't find anybody. That gap is a gap of broken relationship. It's not a physical gap. It's a gap of broken relationship, a breach in the relationship between God and his people. Or maybe it's a gap of uh, something a little bit more simple. When we're praying for people, it's a gap that we're trying to fill, a gap between what is real and what is God's ideal. My children are living this way, but this is God's ideal. My, my cousin is, is experiencing this, but this is God's ideal. There's a gap there. And God is saying there's no one to stand in the gap. He's seeking for that, the Bible says. He's seeking for that. God is looking for intercessors. Do you see that? Yes or no? That God is actually looking for something, and he's looking for intercessors. He's looking for bridge builders in prayer. He's looking for people to pray. Why? Is it because he's unwilling to fill in the gap? No, but he's unwilling to violate our will in order to do that. (laughs) Why is he looking for intercessors? He's looking for people who will give him permission to fulfill his will in the lives of those around us. And that's what he's looking for. He's looking for intercessors. And there's a sobering question that crossed my mind this week as I was just studying this. And I'll be honest, intercessory prayer, it's a huge topic. It's a huge reality that is all throughout Scripture. And so, uh, I don't know, maybe we have bitten too much that we can chew. (laughs) But, But there's a sobering question that really crossed my mind this week. That if I don't pray, who will? If I don't pray for him or her, who will? If I don't pray for that gap, who will? And how can God fill in the gap if nobody gives him the green light? If I don't stand to intercede, who will? I would submit that as long as we assume that others will stand in the gap, as long as we assume that someone else is going to intercede, we'll never become a house of prayer. But by the grace of God, I believe God wants to lead us into the school of intercessory prayer. What do you think? Yeah? All throughout Scripture, there are people who prayed. And I just want to take a look at a few of them really quickly, okay? Let's go to Colossians, New Testament, Colossians chapter 4. So now we're going towards the end, Colossians chapter 4. Going past the Corinthians, past the T-zone of the Thessalonians, Timothys, Titus. No, no, not past the T-zone, sorry. (laughs) Right before the T-zone. Colossians chapter 4. Colossians chapter 4, and there are people all throughout Scripture who understood why and who understood that they needed to stand in the gap. So Colossians chapter 4, when you're there, say amen. Amen. Colossians chapter 4, verse 12. I want to give us three 
little glimpses of, of people who prayed, people who stood in the gap, who recognized the gap in someone else's life, and they wanted to fill it in through prayer. Colossians chapter 4, and we're going to read verse 12. Colossians chapter 4, verse 12. The Bible says, Epaphras. This is a name that maybe you haven't heard before, but he was a, a man who co-labored with Paul. It says in verse 12, Epaphras, who is one of you, a bondservant of Christ, greets you, always laboring fervently for you in prayers, that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. Question, what did Epaphras always do? He prayed. He prayed for others. And it says, New King James says he labored fervently. And we'll get back to that in just a moment. But here's an example of someone, you know, uh, you might consider him a, a, no, a nobody in Scripture, but yet he's doing it. He's praying. Like, he's not some superhero, super spiritual elite apostle that we've read about all in all the New Testament. No, no, no. He is someone who just, hey, he has a heart for Jesus, and he has a heart for Jesus' people, and so he's going to pray. And he's going to always pray for them. All right? That's Epaphras. But where did he learn that from? He probably picked it up from Paul. Paul the Apostle, he was someone who really discipled people in prayer, and he was one who prayed for his disciples. Turn a few chapters earlier, just to chapter 1. Chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. And just take a look at verses 9 through 11. Here's just one sample of many. If you read through the New Testament, the epistles, you'll find that, that Paul is always praying. Colossians chapter 1, verse 9. The Bible says, For this reason, this is Paul writing to the church in Colossae, for this reason, we also, since the day we heard it, pray for you every now and then. <laughs> no, what does the Bible say? Do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. And he goes on and on. So he sees, okay, these are people that he's praying for. Yeah, they're already believers. It's not like they're not in a relationship with God. But he sees a gap nonetheless. This is where they're at. This is where God would want them to be. And so he's going to constantly pray for them. You follow? Yes or no? Yeah? So there's Epaphras who learned it from Paul. But then there's Paul who learned it from Jesus. Did you know that Jesus interceded? Amen. Oh, maybe I should rephrase that. Jesus intercedes. <laughs> Go with me to Luke. Luke chapter 22. So today we're just flipping all through the Bible. I hope that's okay. Luke chapter 22, and if you're taking notes, go ahead and just, yeah, keep that pen moving. Luke chapter 22, and we're going to look at verse 31 and 32. Luke chapter 22, this is the third book of the New Testament, the Gospel of Luke 22. When you're there, say amen. amen. Okay. Luke 22, verses 31 to 32. In my Bible, these are in red letters, because Jesus is talking. In verse 31, it says, The Lord said, Simon, Simon. He's talking to Peter, right? Simon Peter. Simon, Simon. Indeed, Satan has asked for you, that he may sift you as wheat. Verse 32. What's the very first word there? But. Amen. Right? Satan has plans for you. Satan has schemes for you. You are in the crosshairs of Satan. But, verse 32, but I have prayed for you 
that your faith should not fail. And notice how confident Jesus is in his prayer. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. Whoa. What would it have been like for Peter to hear that Jesus was just praying for him? I mean, what kind of assurance would you walk around with? Whoa, that guy just prayed for me. Do you realize that Jesus prays for each and every one of you? Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. Yeah, let's go there. Let's, let's, Let's look at it. Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7. I mean, we don't even have to go that far. We could look in John 17, and Jesus is already praying for not just his disciples. He's actually praying for the disciples, the believers, all throughout the ages. And so he did pray for us there in John 17. But in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, there's... It's just a powerful picture. I would recommend if you're in the habit of memorizing, or maybe you're wanting to be in the habit of memorizing, memorize Hebrews 7, verse 25. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. When you're there, say, I found it. Okay. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. And this is speaking about Jesus, the resurrected Christ, the one who's already gone to Calvary and is now in the sanctuary in heaven. What is he doing? Sipping lemonade? Verse 25, Therefore he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Praise the Lord. First of all, Jesus is able to save you. Jesus is able to save me. If you need to hear it again, I'll say it again. Jesus is able to save you, no matter how far you've gone. No matter how far you are, Jesus is able to save you to the uttermost. Why? Because he ever lives, or he always lives, to make intercession for them. What do you live for? What do you live for? (laughs) You live for that moment when your newborn actually smiles at you. Ah, finally! (laughs) I'm waiting for that. (laughs) He's gotten a little bit of a smirk every now and then, but I really think it's just... (laughs) Um, what what do you live for you live for that moment when your boss says well done I don't know what you you live for uh, that 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 moment whatever it is what does Jesus lives for what does he live for he lives to pray for you he lives to pray for you to intercede for you and me that's what he lives for because of that he's able to save to the uttermost so where did Epaphras get it he got it from Paul where did Paul get it? he got it from Jesus Jesus was always praying for. He was standing in the gap. Standing in the gap. And to be honest, this is what Jesus does as our high priest. And yet, he actually calls every one of us a royal priesthood. In other words, Jesus is actually extending that ministry of intercession to all of us. Do you realize that, that Jesus wants all of us to be bridge builders? to stand in the gap, to actually live for this, to live to pray for other people. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18, in Ephesians chapter, let's go there too, okay. (laughs) Let's do it. Ephesians chapter 6. So if you're in Hebrews, you're going a little bit to the left, a little bit before Colossians. Ephesians chapter 6. You know, we know this, This section of scripture, Ephesians chapter 6, 
Maybe some of us know it for the armor of God. This is where Paul is talking about taking up the full armor of God, being strong in the Lord, standing in the power of his might. In Ephesians chapter 6, at the end of this list of armor, he gets down to verse 18. When you're there, say amen. amen. Okay, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18. He says, Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for who? For all the saints. Anyways, the whole point is simply this. That if the armor of God is for everybody, so is praying for others. At the end of this list where he says, hey, take up the shield of faith, the belt of truth, the helmet of salvation. Then he says, praying always for all the saints. And for some reason we think, oh, I need the belt of truth. Everybody needs the helmet of salvation. Everybody needs the sword of the spirit. But only a few who show up to prayer meeting, they should pray for the saints. I'm exaggerating, but you understand, like, the the whole point is that this ministry of intercession, the ministry of intercession is a ministry that all can engage in. Did you hear it? It's a ministry that everybody can engage in. You don't have to necessarily be at a meeting to do it. Why? Because we can pray anywhere, anytime, right? Right? Some of us have wondered, you know, in, in conversations where we've had uh, talks about uh, spiritual gifts, I don't, need, I don't know what my spiritual gift is. I don't know where my fit in ministry is. Check it out. There's a ministry for everybody <laughs> to stand in the gap and pray for one another. It's a ministry that all can engage in, and as we've already talked about, it's a ministry that we all should engage in. And so if that really is something that Jesus is inviting us into, If, as a part of the royal priesthood, I can share in the priestly ministry of Jesus by standing in the gap, in prayer, interceding, maybe we should settle this question. How do I do that? (laughs) Right? How do I intercede for others? I don't even know what to say. I don't even know how to pray. How do I intercede for others? And so I want to get real practical here as we just kind of wrap this up. I'm going to give you some ABCs of how to intercede, all right? So if you're, again, if you're taking notes, you can start making a list, A, B, C, etc. all right? A, B, C's of how to intercede. Letter A, intercede with agony. And some of you are like, what? (laughs) I thought this was going to be something that I would enjoy. Intercede with agony. What do I mean by that? In Colossians chapter 4, we read about Epaphras. It said that he labors fervently. Always laboring fervently. You remember, we, we just read that a few moments ago. The Greek word is that Epaphras agonizes. <laughs> Agonizomai is the Greek word. He, he agonizes. In other words, he contends and he struggles with, with fervent zeal because he knows that we're all contending and we're all struggling. In other words, You need to know at the very onset that if you want to intercede, it's not for the faint-hearted. Intercession recognizes that there is war behind the scenes. And that if I don't pray, it's a matter of life and death. And so we intercede with agony. We intercede with with earnestness, a zeal that contends with spiritual forces and saying, Lord, you must step in. 
Do you understand what it means to intercede with agony? I mean, there are people you know, you know, I mean, we're not just, we're not just, you know, praying for my food. <laughs> we're praying for someone's eternal salvation. Right? That's, that's what it is to pray with agony, to agonize with God. So that's letter A, intercede with agony. Letter B, intercede with boldness. Intercede with boldness. Powerful passage in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, it says, Let us therefore come boldly before the throne of grace. We are invited to pray with boldness. Not, not with pushiness. Not with entitlement. But with boldness. Knowing that there's a throne of grace, that God is able to provide help in our time of need. I think about this story of Abraham. You remember Abraham? His story is in the book of Genesis, and in Genesis chapter 18, God actually visits him. (laughs) Three strangers walk to his tent, and they actually share a meal with Abraham, and and God is one of those. He's he's actually there with Abraham. And Abraham feeds him and, and takes care of God and just enjoys good company with God. And eventually these three visitors, they start moving on, and they're headed towards two towns. Do you remember what towns they're headed towards? Sodom and Gomorrah. And God talks to his companions, and he says, hey, should I tell this guy? Should I tell Abraham what I'm about to do? God was on a mission to really check out what Sodom and Gomorrah was like, because their cry of evil had reached to heaven, and God needed to put a check on it. Otherwise, salvation for others would be in jeopardy. And Abraham, as he hears this, he begins to pray. And he talks with God, and it's almost as though he bargains with God. Do you remember how this goes? He says, Lord, if there are 50 righteous people in Sodom and Gomorrah, I mean, you wouldn't destroy the righteous with the wicked, right? And God says, of course not, of course not. And then, before he moves away, Abraham says, well, what if there's 45 righteous, right? And the story continues. God just kind of patiently bears with Abraham, and Abraham bargains him down and says, what if there's 10 what if there's ten? And each time, Abraham's like, Lord, I know, I know you can do whatever you want, but, but here, what about ten righteous people? And Abraham's humility is really boldness. Boldness to pray large and also to pray long. <laughs> you know, working it, working that intercession, but that's what boldness looks like. In fact, write this text down too. Isaiah 62, verse 7. In Isaiah 62, verse 7, we're told that there are watchmen on the walls that pray. And in the lingo of Isaiah 62, it says that they make mention of the Lord. And there's a phrase that says, they give God no rest. (laughs) Those that are set on the walls to pray for God's people, give him no rest. That's what it is to pray large and to pray long. (laughs) Lord, but what about this? But seriously, what about him? Did you help him? No, really, him. (laughs) You you get the picture. Pray bold, pray big, pray large, pray long. Pray with boldness. Intercede with boldness. So that's just A, that's just B. Let's go to letter C. A, B, C. Pray with agony, boldness. Intercede with, here it is, letter C. Intercede with compassion. 